In your pew Bibles or the scriptures you brought with you, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We started uh, looking to the book of Ephesians over here these seven summer weeks and, and months, and this morning we're going to look at chapter 2, the first 10 verses. Uh, if you were here with us last week, we looked at the end of chapter 1, because chapter 1 comes before chapter 2, and in the, at the end of chapter 1 there was a prayer that Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. And we uh, noted there that what Paul prays for, he prays for uh, a knowledge, that they would come to a deeper knowledge of, of God in their lives. And we've made the, the observation that Paul doesn't pray for their circumstances. Uh, he knows who they are. He knows what their situation is. Maybe not in the minute detail, but generally speaking, he knows what the concerns are there. He doesn't pray uh, for a new emperor. He doesn't pray for political situation. He doesn't pray for their economic situation. Doesn't pray for their health situation, doesn't pray for their, their parenting skills, their marriages, or whatever the case may be. He doesn't get into all the specifics, and you have to take a step back. Well, why does he not do that? Well, I think it's because he's saying to us, it, a knowledge of God is going to equip you to deal with your economic situation, your political situation, uh, the, your work situation. Uh, your family situation, your marriage, your parenting, whatever it is, a deeper, richer, fuller understanding of who God is, his promises, is going to equip you and move you uh, to be able to be the type of person to deal with hard situations, with difficult decisions, uh, with conflict, with, with awkwardness. Uh, a deeper knowledge of him is going to enable you to, to move in that direction. He talks about uh, change via talking about the power of the Holy Spirit to, to change us. And we're going to see here in a moment that, that this power is on display when we read this passage. When our children were smaller, they're still little. They'll always be little to me, okay? Every parent can say that. They'd watch these shows, and we were interested in all these kid shows that we'd never heard of before, and some of them, thankfully, we'll never have to watch again. Uh, but there were a couple ones that were kind of interesting. Uh, one I kind of appreciated as an adult, was uh, Curious George. Y'all familiar with Curious George? George is a monkey, and uh, he's curious, hence the name Curious George. And uh, he's got a, I don't know what he is, he's an owner, a father, he's the man with the yellow hat, okay? Nobody, I don't know if anybody knows, I don't know if he has a name, he's just the man with the yellow hat, okay, that's always rescuing him. There was one episode they were watching, and uh, George, for whatever reason, doesn't want to be a monkey anymore, okay? He's fed up with being a monkey. He's not liking it. We can only imagine. And uh, he says, I want to be a dog. And so he starts acting like a dog, but that doesn't really work. And he starts acting like a cat. That doesn't really work for him either. Uh, he tries to be a bird, but that's definitely not working uh, for him. And he goes on and on, and he comes to realize it's like, I can't change. I am who I am. I'm always going to be a monkey. That's just the, the way it is. I can't change my reality. I can't change that circumstance uh, about me. As we are about to read uh, Ephesians chapter 2, I think Paul is, is reminding us that there's something about us that we cannot change. That there has to be something from the outside that, that comes in and addresses us and our situation and what's wrong and brings about the appropriate change for us. Let's stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read the first 10 verses. Let's hear God's word together. 
As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler in the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is God's word to us. Would you pray with me? Father, how rich are these uh, words and how life-giving they are to us. I pray that the simplicity of it and the, the truth of it would not slip past us here this morning and that you would capture us and renew us again. We ask in Christ Jesus. Amen. Would you please be seated. As a way of introduction, I want to um, present to you some uh, ways that uh, people have tried to describe uh, the gospel. To talk about it in a kind of an evangelistic conversation with somebody and trying to describe um, man's condition and what it looks like to, uh, for God to work and to accept him in your life, okay? There's three of them. The first one, there's like metaphors, okay? Uh, you are drowning and God throws you a life preserver. Just as you were about to go down the last time, you grab it and your life is spared, You're sick to the point of death. You're in the hospital and God comes with a spoon of medicine that will save you if you will just take it. He opens your mouth, but will not pour it in unless you wish for him to. The decision for you, the decision for you is, will you choose to take the medicine that will save you? The last one. You have terminal cancer. It's all throughout your body and killing you, but Jesus will give you a blood transfusion a bone marrow transfusion, a skin graft, everything you need. He'll give you his organs. All you have to do is agree to the operation. You can say what you will about these uh, illustrations or about these metaphors, and I think they, they may be helpful up to a certain point, but I don't think they, uh, I think they fall short when you think about it in light of what we read here in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, when you think about what Paul is, is describing as, as man's condition. Remember when we started the book of Ephesians, when we looked at the first uh, 14 verses, we said this is God's view of salvation. This is, from God's perspective, this is what salvation looks like and what he's doing in our lives. But when we get to chapter 2, we see a little bit more uh, of what it looks, salvation looks like from our perspective. Uh, what it looks like from our context to receive him, to know him, to put our faith and trust in him. And we see bad news in this passage. Uh, We see the reality of who we are in God's eyes, and if we're honest, we know uh, this truth to be the case. 
But we also see the good news. We see that the richness of what God has done by his grace in his mercy towards us to, to bring him to himself. I made mention at the end of chapter 1 in Paul's prayer, that Paul puts on display the power of God. And he compared that power, the God that's working within us, to resurrection power. Not his creating power, creating something from nothing power, not in his creational power, power in the sense of a hurricane or tornado, but resurrection power. And we see in chapter 2 that resurrection power on display and taking that which was spiritually dead and giving it life through his son. And so two things I want to do with this passage. I want to look at how does this passage describe us? How does it describe who we are? That's the bad news, if you will. And then look at the good news. What does God do? What does God do in light of our situation? Uh, how does God respond to us? So the first one is, is who we are, okay? Who are we? You ask any good Bible student, any good Bible teacher, and the best way to, to get into the Scriptures where you're just reading it one-on-one, you've, you've got the, a passage open, you've got a notepad and pen in hand, and you want to learn, you want to do some Bible study, one of the best questions you can ask yourself is, or ask the text is, what does this passage teach me about myself? What do I learn about myself? What do I learn about man from this passage? Well, what do we learn about ourselves from this passage? I think there's three things. Go back and look at verse 1 again. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. There's three things. The first one is, is our guilt. Uh, we see our guilt, that we are people that, that break the law. We break the commandments. Uh, maybe think about it like this. If everything you thought, everything you said, everything you did was known to everybody else, what would you do? You probably wouldn't want to be here this morning. I don't care how much you've given to the church or what kind of job you have and all the good things you've done. If everything was on display, everything you thought and done and acted upon, if it was made known to everybody, you would run for cover. It's an indicator of what? Of our guilt. We know what we've done wrong. We know where we have fallen short. But the problem with that, when I say that we're guilty and we've broken God's commandments, we can default into thinking, well, that's just not that big a deal or it's not that serious of an issue. It's not something that we really, we get concerned with. Because we try to hide from that guilt and we try to build up walls against that guilt that we feel by comparing ourselves to other people. We think, well, gosh, I can't believe they said that. I would never say that. I can't believe they let their children do that. I would never do that. I can't believe they do this or that. We compare ourselves to others and we do what? We feel better about ourselves. I'm not that bad off compared to this person. We can always find stuff to compare uh, with other people to feel better about ourselves. But if we compare ourselves to a holy God, a righteous God, a just God, a loving God, uh, then we see where we fall short. We see more of our, our guilt and our shame. The other way I think we put up barriers to, to deal with our, our guilt is we just don't think it's that big a deal. We don't think it's that big a deal. We think of our sin as, it's like going 35 in a 30 mile per hour zone. It's just five over. It's not that, it's not that big a deal. But how does God see our sin? How big a deal does God see it? Look at the cross. 
It took his son to come, to be arrested, to be humiliated, to be beaten up, to be made bloody, to be whipped, to be uh, hanged publicly on a cross, and to die there. That's what God thinks about our sins. That's what he thinks about what we thought this past week, what we did this past week, what we did last year. That's what he thinks about it. It's a big deal to him. It shows us our guilt. Something else we learn about ourselves is that we're spiritually dead. Paul's saying that you are dead in your sins and trespasses, that there is no spiritual life there, that spiritually we are inactive. We are not uh, sensitive to spiritual things by nature. We're dead to them. Things like adoption, grace, mercy, kindness, um, righteousness, uh, forgiveness, all those things, they, they just bounce it. Apart from Christ, they mean nothing to us. They get no traction with us. They mean nothing. One pastor compares it being uh, spiritually dead to a dead body. You see a dead body, it has no senses. It can't see, it can't smell, it can't touch, it can't taste, it can't do anything. It's, it, it, it can't respond to anything, and that's how we are spiritually apart from Christ. We are spiritually dead. Maybe you've been in a situation where you're uh, somebody who is, they're struggling with, somebody, with something, and you pull out maybe a, a promise from the Bible, or you talk about God is a God of, he loves, he knows what's going on, and, and just didn't want to point them towards God just to take comfort in the reality of who he is. And that person just kind of nods, and they're like, okay, okay. And then they ask, well, how, how can we change my circumstance? What about my situation now? It, it's, it, it's just not sensitive to anything spiritual. It doesn't get any traction in their lives because there's spiritual deadness there. They don't get it. They don't understand it. There's, there's no life to be had there. It doesn't mean that somebody apart from Christ can't enjoy life. Just because you're a non-Christian doesn't mean you can't enjoy all the, the common grace things that God gives us. But what it does mean, apart from Christ, those things will never lead you to worship him. For example, you sit down and enjoying a good steak, and a good delicious meal, I mean just a, a real special meal. Apart from Christ, we can never see that, taste that meal and partake of it and say, God, you are so good. Jesus, thank you for this gift. Somebody who's spiritually dead can never go out and view a sunset and see all the colors and all the, the peace and tranquility and the majesty of it. They can see it's beautiful. They can see it's, it's memorizing, mesmerizing and amazing. But it's never going to lead them to say, God, you are good. You are glorious. Lord Jesus, your creation is amazing. Because there's a spiritual deadness there. And we're all spiritually dead apart from Christ. The last thing is this, and it comes in verse uh, 3. He says, All of us also lived among them as one time gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, and this is it, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The third thing we learn about ourselves is that we are deserving of wrath. That God's wrath is hanging over us apart from Christ. 
that we are in that dangerous position of always falling prey to it, always experiencing it apart from him. Uh, John Stott, uh, author, commentator, pastor who passed away some years ago, writes this about God's wrath. He says, God's wrath is not a bad temper, not spite, nor malice, nor animosity, nor revenge. It's never arbitrary, since it is the divine reaction to the one situation, namely evil. Therefore, it is entirely predictable, and it is never subject to mood, whim, or caprice. Further, it is not the impersonal outworking of retribution in society. It is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility towards evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. Apart from Christ, God's condemnation is upon us because of what we're guilty, because of our spiritual uh, death, uh, deadness that's there. That's how serious our sin is. That's how bad of a situation it is. Now, maybe you're thinking at this point, why do we have to hear this bad news? Why are you describing this to us? Why are you being such a Debbie Downer about all this stuff? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because what's important for us to, to see is we have to see the, the bad news to know the good news. So much of the time we, we take in the good news. Christ loves me. Christ has forgiven me. But we, don't for, and we forget to put it in its right context. In our guilt. In the context of our shame. In the context of, of God's just punishment for, for all of our, our sins. We forget how deeply we really need it. And when you understand how much you need it, the gospel is that much more beautiful to you. It's that much more refreshing. It's that much more life-giving for you. Imagine that you are gone, you're on vacation, which is, this is vacation time. And you ask me to pick up your mail. And I pick up your mail for a couple weeks, and I've got it collected there on your counter waiting for you when you get home. And you get back, and you say, you don't have to get my mail anymore. I've collected it all. It's, I mean, I'm back now. I can get it on my own. I say, that's great. But then I tell you, you know, I was thinking about you, and I just, I just love you a lot, and I want to do something nice for you. And I paid one of your bills. Now, if I paid one of your bills, certainly you'd be thankful, but you don't know how thankful to be because you know all your bills. If it's just a bill that you've got for overdue library books, you're like, thanks, you know, I could have done that $5, but I appreciate it. But if it was a bill for you know, your five kids' college education that you've got to pay for, that 500 grand that's waiting for you, you would be awestruck if I paid that for you. You'd be full of gratitude. That's what I'm trying to get at when we hear the, the bad news. We forget the context. We forget to, this is how serious the debt is. This is how big a deal it is. My guilt, my shame, uh, my spiritual inability... That's how bad it is, but God comes and redeems us. We forget the context of his grace and his forgiveness. If I came up to you one day and I said, you're out on the beach, and I said, you don't have to go to the electric chair, you think, of course I don't. I'm on vacation. There's no electric chair in my future. But if I came to you on death row and I said to you, you don't have to go to the electric chair, you would be amazed at that. The context is so important. If I came to you in the middle of the night, I said, wake up, wake up. And I whispered in your ear, I've got the keys. There's a helicopter outside. Let's go. 
you either want to call the police because you're sleeping peacefully in your bed. What are you doing? Or if you're in prison, you'd be like, yes, thank you. Let's get out of here. I want to get out. The context. Grace, salvation, Christ, the cross means nothing to you if you don't understand your guilt. If you don't understand your spiritual inability. If you don't understand God's wrath upon you because of those things. We have to remember the context to understand that the value and weight and the glory of the gospel in our lives. So that's who we are. Let's talk briefly about what God has, has done. What did God do? Look at verse 4. But because of his great love, is there a, a more glorious contrast to hear those words? Yes, you are a sinful person, and you're going to spend eternity apart from him. But God has something different God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ. There's a contrast. There's a comparison that that Paul is, is doing in this passage. He's made us alive when he's just talked about us being dead uh, in, our, in, our, in our sin. He's raised us up in contrast to being condemned, being uh, put down and being held down by that. We're seated with Christ. We're in a position of freedom that, that our sin no longer masters us. It doesn't, uh, it's, it's not our fate anymore, but we're with Christ. There's freedom. There's, there's life there, there. There's joy there. And the only way you're going to understand this spiritual reality that that God has for you and what God has done when he says at the beginning that because of God's rich, loving mercy for us is to understand what theologians call union with Christ. Anytime you see the, the phrase in Christ or in Jesus, what it's talking about is our union with Christ, our relationship with Christ. You understand that concept there's going to be so much that you understand about your new identity in Christ, no longer dead, but alive in him, belonging to him. In other words, he, in Christ means that what is true of Christ is now true of you. What is true of God's Son is now true of you. How God the Father sees the Son is because you are in Christ, that's how he sees you. For example, in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So to be crucified with, with Christ means that Christ, excuse me, that God sees my sins as being nailed to the cross, as being paid for. He sees it that I've already died. The penalty's already been paid for that. You did not literally die with Christ on the cross. But because you are in Christ, because you're associated with him, identified with him, because you're in Christ, it's like your sins have been paid for. It's like you've been set free from those things. Imagine that you got a a speeding ticket. I know that's a stretch. You would never get a speeding ticket. But imagine you got a speeding ticket, and you had the money, and you paid for it right away. Okay, you got the ticket. I sped. I was wrong. Here's, here's the, I, I pay the, the fine for it. Months go by, and you're driving down the road, 
When you look in your rearview mirror, and there's a cop car behind you. The lights are not on, but he's kind of reading, uh, driving close to you, and he's watching you. And you can tell he's looking at your plates, and you can kind of tell that he's looking things up on his computer. And you kind of do this run in your head. It's like, have I done anything wrong? I haven't killed anybody, I haven't robbed anything, I haven't stolen anything. And then you remember you got that ticket, and you're like, oh no, I got that speeding ticket. And then you remember I paid for it. You're free. There's no need to worry. There's, the, the, he has nothing against you. There's freedom there, right? To be in Christ means to be free, free from our debt. Our debt has been paid. It was nailed to the cross. It doesn't belong to us anymore. There's freedom there. You don't have to do anything. It's done. It's paid for. Do you understand that freedom? Do you understand that reality? You don't have to make up for it. You don't have to balance out the scales. You don't have to prove yourself to God. He knows who you are. And he's taken your sin. And he's nailed it to the cross. And you're not accountable for it anymore. It's paid for. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We see this. God regards us as our sin being taken care of, our sin being nailed to the cross. Christ is treated as if he was sinful as if he deserved that penalty in our place. He was our substitute for us. That's what it means to be in Christ. He was your substitute. But there's something else. Not only do you, are your, is your sin given to him, that he pays for it, but he gives you what? He gives you his righteousness, rightness, a right standing with him. Do you know that freedom? Do you know that the, the certainty of that? You belong to him. You're his. Yes, your sins are forgiven, but you've been made right with God. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody. It doesn't matter what people think about you. The God of the universe accepts you as righteous. He's adopted you into his family, as we talked about last couple weeks ago when we looked at chapter 1. For Christ to be our substitute means that what is true of Christ is true of us. What belongs to him belongs to us. It's like when you get married, that bank account, it's, it's now shared. Money earned by one person is freely spent by somebody else. Debt incurred by one person is, is now paid for by both of y'all. What belongs to one belongs to the other. For Christ to be identified with us means that we get all of that stuff. We get all those things that belong to him. Uh, something else, the last thing that we'll see here, our union with Christ means that God does not stand at a distance, but it means that he has bonded himself to us, that he has bound himself to us. 9 and 10, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from, your, not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. One thing to notice about this passage, these first 10 verses, there are no commandments. God is telling you to do nothing. 
He's just saying, this is your spiritual reality. This is who you really are, and this is who I really am, and this is what I've done for you. But there's implications for this. To be identified with him, to be in union with Christ, to put your faith in him, to be a follower, a disciple of him, has certain implications. And one of those implications is this, that your life as a Christian now is now relational. The most important thing about you as a Christian is that you belong to Christ. That's your greatest truth. That's your greatest reality. That's your identity. It's not how good a job you do in your vocation. It's not how many friends you have. It's not how big an account you have. It's not how great your kids are or how big your family is or how loving you are. The most important thing about you is Christ and that you belong to him, that you are his son, that you are his daughter. Your life is relational. Your life belongs to him That is your truth. That is your reality. That's your identity. Not what you do. Not what you look like. But Christ in you. The second thing is you have this freedom to be honest. To be honest with yourself. I talked about earlier about guilt and how we just don't like to think about our guilt. We don't think it's that big a deal. And we put up these barriers by comparing ourselves, by thinking it's it's not that big of a crime. That to be in Christ means that you can be honest with yourself. You're a mess. I don't care what kind of image you put before other people, how nice you look, how good, how good smelling you are, the ni- how clean you look, how nice your car is. Inside, what, there are moments in our lives when we know it. We are a mess. We are a disaster waiting to happen. Paul compares our spiritual life to a dead body. And we all know how difficult it is to see a dead body. If that's how God sees us, He knows our mess. He knows how horrific we look. He knows how bad it is. But he gave us his son. He gave us a redeemer. He says, I know your life is a mess, but here's my son. It's paid for. You belong to me. You can tell me all the good. You can give me all the junk. I'm not going to be surprised. I'm not going to be shocked. I'm not going to be overwhelmed. I'm not going to put my time in anybody else. We can be honest with him. The last thing is, is this. There is only black and white in this passage. Either uh, you owe him your death, or you're resting in his death for you. That's it. Those are the only two options. Jesus tells us in the gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That there is no life apart from him. There is no hope of spiritual Eternity. There's no hope of forgiveness. There's no help of, of dealing with your shame. There's no uh, time management schedule that's going to make you a better person. All the discipline in the world is not going to make you righteous. Our only hope is Christ and Him crucified for us. And He gives that to us. It's a gift. It's His grace. It's His love for us. How does it resonate with you? Is your identity being found in him? Do you know how bad you really are? And do you see how good he really is and what he's given you? Let's pray and ask that he would work. Father God, you are are rich in mercy. We can't imagine the richness of your grace. It's hard for us to imagine that you would give us something that we do not deserve, that we haven't earned 
But we are dead. We are guilty. And we are deserving of your wrath. But you, before we even were, chose to give us your Son by your grace. We, are no, we know that we are loved because you love us. Father God, would you use this gospel to heal our broken hearts, to heal our, to heal our guilt, to heal our shame, to heal our indifference? Would you, by your grace, draw us to yourself, that we see the reality of all that you are? In Christ's name, amen.